The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callahan Innovation. Here's your host, Simon Pound. At the age of 37, a young woman who made her way up through a pretty sexist world got the biggest job in the country. No, it's not Jacinda Ardern today, it's Teresa Gatting in 1997. For a brief little window there, a few years later, most of the top jobs in this country were held by women. Dame Sean Elias was Chief Justice, Dame Sylvia Cartwright, Governor General, Margaret Wilson, Attorney General, Teresa Gatting was Telecom's Chief Executive, and Helen Clark was Prime Minister. But boy, how we slipped. By the time Gatting retired in 2007, it was only Dame Elias left. How do we get back? Well, the new PM's a start, but gains got can be gains lost. One way is for women to empower women, and it's in that capacity Teresa Gatting joins the podcast today. After Telecom, she's gone on to chair major boards, co-found the ridiculously successful My Food Bag, and get a companion of the New Zealand Order of Merit Gong for services to business and philanthropy, with her work for the Wellington SPCA and organisations empowering women. Like the newly launched SHIO, a fund that has women invest in other women, part of a global $1 billion idea that Teresa has just helped bring here. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Hey, first up, let's look at your early career. It's really interesting that I've read that um, you'd always wanted to be a, a leader, an executive and a CEO. Well, almost always. Um, I'm the daughter of immigrant parents who came from Britain with nothing and the eldest of four girls. And my parents, my father in particular, used to say we could all achieve whatever we dreamed of as long as we worked hard for it. So he had a very gender neutral approach. Girls were as good as boys and could achieve as much but was very focused on us being financially independent, as in fact I think are many children of immigrant parents. And both my parents were small business people, so I grew up in a household where business was the order of the day, and I've always found business really fascinating. And when I occasionally come across someone who says, look, I never read the business pages, I never listen to business news, I think to myself, but business is just the intersection of people and money. What could be more compelling than that? So I've always loved business, and um, I did a—I actually did a business degree at Waikato University. I did lots of things in it, though. I've always been naturally curious, and at high school I did everything you could possibly do and more. And in my business degree, I did women's studies, which would still be pretty unusual today, but it was unheard of 35 years ago. And... No one is more surprised than me that all these years later, that combination of being a business person and being a feminist is sort of cool now, but it definitely wasn't cool then. And I really felt like I didn't fit in either world. There were very few women in business school in those days. 
and the women who were there kept their heads down and basically stayed mum and, you know, tried to survive. And I never have done that, always been very stroppy. But over at Women's Studies in the School of Arts, I also felt that I was walking over with a capitalist sign on my forehead and didn't fit there either. So quite early on, actually, I learned that sometimes to be true to yourself, you don't fit the environment you're in and you have to decide you're going to be popular or you're going to be true to yourself and, you know, hopefully be respected. I read something great about uh, that you would wear suits to lectures and kind of playing that role of... um, of provocateur, but also saying, "Hey, I'm here, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna take this next role." Tell, tell me about that because I guess that also makes it. You must have to deliver twice as well if you're going to put yourself forward in that way. Well, it's true. It's not one of those stories that someone created and it just got repeated. It is true that about two years into my business degree, I really put the feminist literature together with the business studies and said, "There's no woman running large companies in New Zealand." And the stats on women in executive roles in New Zealand are dire. Uh, It was a book written by Dr. Helen Place on women in management. And I really loved, like I've already said, business. And I said, I'm going to run a large company by the time I'm 40. But I didn't tell anybody that because I thought people would say, oh, what's a girl from Rotorua thinking she could do that? But I decided that I would live as if I was. So that meant scrapping together my pennies and buying a suit and wearing it to university, and I convinced my boyfriend at the time to do the same, so we must have looked like quite a pair going to lectures dressed up like that. That's so cool that you had that goal. How did you, like, what was the world like to be someone who wanted to be a leader when the majority of women were not in leadership positions? And the places you went and worked for, they weren't cutting-edge, out-there, brand-new institutions. They were some of the biggest, oldest, most venerable institutions in the country. Well, I think if the notion of being an entrepreneur had been around in my early 20s, I would have been one from the get-go. But when I finished business school and I then did a law degree, I decided I didn't want to be a lawyer. And everyone joined corporates. People weren't doing overseas grad degrees like they do these days. You did one or two degrees at university and then you got a job. It was always in corporates. Uh, And... So I started in media, in TVNZ, which is a pretty dynamic industry, then and now. But because I had a business degree and a law degree, I sort of quickly established that financial services might be a better fit. And so I went into financial services and effectively had a fantastic time, walked into the head of marketing job at the BNZ the day of the financial bailout. (laughs) So that was a very interesting life experience. This is pre-internet. Yeah, yeah. And and to walk into um, every single person in the country hearing that you're bankrupt and your business doesn't know what it's doing and then to have to get out of that hole. Exactly, exactly. And some of the interesting times in my 20s in business – turned out to be lessons that were great lessons for later, both at National Mutual and at the Bank of New Zealand. I learnt that positional power only takes you so far. Sometimes as a woman you need to use positional power if you've got it, but ultimately personal power is way more important. And of course now, in a post-internet world, that is exactly right. People often don't have much positional power because you know people can be broadcasting about you on the internet and that can reach an audience of millions and bang goes the positional power you thought you had. So I think we live in a world that has changed, you know, from a business perspective, way more fluid, way more integrative than the world that I grew up in. 
how did you make your mark there uh, at the BNZ, for example, uh, in the head of marketing role? Because you're you're known very well as a chief executive and as a business leader. But it was uh, for your work in marketing that you were inducted into the Marketing Hall of Fame. Because I recruited a team of believers that we could turn that bank around and we could make it great again. And that's exactly what we did. So I was leading the marketing team, but I was a colleague in the executive team with some very, very, you know, other people who went on to be CEOs in New Zealand, Rob Fife, Rod Carr, Sam Knowles. So that group that went through the fire together all went on to run companies. And someone observed to me a few years ago that one thing that we all had in common was that we've all successfully run large companies, but we've also successfully created or run startups. And that experience of being in a large company that basically collapsed around you and having to stand it up again from the grassroots by working with staff, because the first thing you have to do is get the tellers not to leave, right? Because there is no internet. There's no internet banking. You can't communicate with your customers easily. You've got to have the staff on side. So standing that bank up again, the answer to your question was a team of believers I hired and have done all my life, the very best talent I could find, people smarter than me if I could possibly manage it, certainly people who had a deep range of skills. And again, some of the people on my marketing team have gone on to have wonderful careers. Nick Ross, CEO of UBS, Andrea Hammond, very successful in her PR and marketing career. So that that team, we worked to do some things that were different. We set up... Um, the Supporters Club for the America's Cup. We really invest in database marketing really quite early on. Uh, we st stopped the idea that marketing was just about pretty pictures. We had the most brilliant analyst in our team and we drove the debate on pricing. We tried to lead the pricing strategy for the bank rather than let that come out of, say, Treasury. And I think we were pretty successful in that. So we did a number of things working with the CEO and, and the rest of my colleagues that meant four years later the bank was sold for a lot of money to NAB. And that's quite interesting to be at the intersection of state and commerce, which is where uh, TVNZ and then Bank of New Zealand and then Telecom, now Spark of course, but originally owned by the government and then its own incredibly dominant um, company. And I don't know if everyone, um, you, you know, thinking about the business environment today really grasps just how dominant uh, player in the landscape that Telecom was in 1997 when you became CEO? It was 99 when I became but, CEO, uh, actually. Yeah, 99. Yeah. Well, New Zealand has always had actually many companies not listed. So Telecom was clearly the biggest listed company in New Zealand. And it was while I was at Telecom that Fonterra got created and became the biggest company, obviously not listed. So... Dominance, are, you know, it, depend, it depends how you look at it. You might today say a Fonterra's dominant and that still would only be only a partial truth. But anyway, it was, there were, there was less, there were fewer companies that were followed in the business pages, that's yeah. correct. Telecom was definitely one of those. And being a female CEO meant that I got lots of publicity. I went from not being known at all to suddenly being followed everywhere. And I found that difficult in the beginning. I, I got used to it over time, but I did find that difficult. Um, but it it was the, you know, 13 years of the best of times and the worst of times. I wrote quite a bit about it in my book, mm. Bird on a Wire. And I made lifelong friends and I absolutely was able to 
create another generation of leaders because all the people who are on my executive team have all gone on to be CEOs. What was the reaction like when you got the job? And it's interesting to see, you know, the Jacinda Ardern from the intro, the reaction to her, which is, you know, quite a few years later. What was it like for you? Look, there were similarities. The first question that I was asked at the news conference of my appointment was, I was 37 at the time, was I going to have children? Wow. Same question. And were you able to tell them as well to butt out? Yeah, basically. (laughs) But to me, it's like, it's sort of shocking that all these years later, that's 99, so that's 18 years later, same question. I mean, have you ever heard a man be asked how he's going to balance career and family? I, I have three kids and I never get asked it. And my partner Ingrid gets asked all the time how she manages to have three children and uh, her fashion business. But I, I have three children and a very busy corporate job and I never get asked it. And so that's so deep in all of us, that idea that it's the woman's responsibility to manage the household and to manage the children. And that was, you know, that I don't know how we shift that, how we deal with that. I do think that flexibility in a, one's work is more of a conversation now than it was back then and I do think that conversation is extended to men as well as women whereas Mm. back then it was only about really women looking after children but I think our whole notion of career is just misplaced we think of career as a noun your career my career but actually I feel that I'm just careering around I think (laughs) career is a verb Mm. I think at best it's a noun if you look backwards over your life But especially with many of us doing many things, portfolio things, for a while, a couple of years ago, if you asked me what I did and where I lived, I couldn't have answered either question. And so that shift that the internet has enabled, and, you know, jet airliners for that matter, uh, means that more people want to be able to be fluid and flexible in the way they organise their lives. And so that is a conversation that's got more resonance now than it had, you know, 20 years ago. Is that something, from my um, background readings on this, uh, it it seemed that you'd got more interests and perspectives after stepping out of the CEO role, perhaps because it had been so consuming. Is that something that you came later to, or is it something that, you know, is is possible to have such a demanding job and have balance in life? Well, one of the reasons I didn't have children was because I didn't think I could manage it because I need eight to nine hours sleep a night. I'm simply a zombie if I get less than that. So I didn't think I could manage it. Mm. But, you know, I've always been curious about the world, as I said before, and did everything at school, sciences, business studies, languages. And so for me, I've always liked to do different things. And But I tend to be a bit obsessive, and so it's relentless being a CEO for mm. men and a woman. You have to be pretty focused on that, and not much else can get into your life. But I actually had health problems in my mid-20s, and that was when I understood that exercising every day, good sleep, um, you know, not much alcohol, good practices like that. If I hadn't done that then, I think I wouldn't have coped. So there are some coping mechanisms, plus you need good domestic support. You need good support at home, and you need you know, brilliant support in whatever is your work environment. What kind of things did you have to upskill on along the way to climb up that ladder and smash that ceiling? Because, I mean, that it, it, it was huge news and a huge achievement to, to, to take down the CEO of such a large company. Well, I had, um, early on in my career, kept a clipping file of women who'd succeeded in business 
around the world actually or got to high ranks in different roles and to motivate me, to, to tell me that it was possible because I didn't see it around me. And actually later I met one of those women and um, Dr Sharon Lord and she became quite a mentor of mine because she came to live in New Zealand. Plus I had good mentors and some of my bosses, um, from my early bosses, Roger Oley, now deceased at National Mutual, to Roderick Dean, my boss for most of my time at Telecom before I became CEO and then chair. So I actually think I had good support, but also I was pretty determined. And, you know, I was more Machiavellian in those days than I would be now. You know, I really now can't handle any sort of corporate politics. I would really seek to avoid any situation that that I had to waste any time on anything that wasn't productive. Whereas then I got, you know, I, I quite enjoyed playing the games you have to play if you're going to be part of a large institution, whether it's a government one or a business one or whatever. And when your workday ends up being front page news because, I don't know, the government decides to break up your company or something like that, what kind of an extra kind of element does that give a job, being so in the public eye? Well, that was horrible. That was, you know, that two years of my life, my partner and I split up after 20 years and the government re-regulating the sector, that, that still probably remains the most difficult period. It's very hard to get perspective when you're in the eye of the storm and it's very hard to, you know, everyone else around you is very stressed as well. And so having to still do the day job while you're trying to manage this sort of environmental change and you don't know people are telling you the truth and, you know, I do, I do remember thinking that I am so pleased to be living in a country which I believe has got no corruption, not even soft corruption, and where people who do inquiries, because you remember there was an inquiry, I had full confidence that any inquiry would turn out the truth, which it did, and that there would be no gerrymandering, there would be no... There would be nothing here except a fair hearing, and that is indeed what happened. It was found that the the um, it was the messenger in Parliament who'd passed it on to Telecom. It was nothing we'd done to get the document. So, in a way, some part of me, you know, lived through something that's part of New Zealand's history, and I was pleased in a way that it was here and not somewhere else. But the short answer to your question is that it is extraordinarily difficult to look at cartoons of yourself with people decapitating you. Right, and to have um, populism whipped up against... I I remember um, something that you said about, uh, which I believe was um, a philosophical position. Well, of course, you could say that confusion is a valid marketing tactic. And that being taken away from the philosophical thing to be read to mean we used confusion as a marketing tactic and kind of ripped out and decontextualised and beaten with that kind of statement. Must must be so hard to have to be so careful not to even speak freely. That must have been, it's interesting you should mention that because, you know, I think that was one of the hardest things, one of the most hurtful things. In the beginning, this whole thing around, oh, you know, the secret recording, whatever, it was nothing secret. It was on the website for months, you know, it was not... And it was, as you say, it was a philosophical um, comment on the way things had been as part of a speech, which if you read the whole thing about that had to change. Mm. And yet all of that was lost. Now, there were a few commentators that wasn't lost on. And one or two people actually pointed out, well, do you want your CEOs and your leaders to be honest or not? Mm. Because, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're going to jump up and down on someone who makes an honest observation, then you, you're going to get people who dissemble. And I am absolutely transparent, straightforward and honest to a fault. So 
I found that very difficult. And in that situation, of course, it's very hard to tell the other story because there's so much momentum going one way. And, and people aren't interested no. in, in, in the real... And I'm not trying to compare you to Donald Rumsfeld, but it's like once you become a caricature for something, like corporate uncaring or something, you, you know, like when he said there are known knowns, there are unknown unknowns, and there are, you know, whatever that was. And it actually was a, <laughs> it was a very sensible view, but because it sounded ridiculous and he was, you know, seen as being, um, you, you know, a, a negative force with it, he, he was never able to make the case. And it must be so hard to... Yeah, be on the wrong side of, of um, yeah, whipped up populism. And look, and that can happen in really different situations, but the short answer to your question is it's very difficult because you can't break through for a while. I mean, you just, you know, that summer I went, over, I went overseas for a month, I just had to get out of the country. It was just overwhelming. And as you say, people don't want to know. Of course, everyone's busy in their own lives. You've only got so much attention span to give to something that's not your world. So I knew that the people who were close to it knew the the story, etc. So I didn't feel like I had any issues with anyone who really understood. But it's like people just giving it five minutes attention. If you're told the same thing enough times, yeah, it sinks in and you believe it. You get caught on the wrong side of a, a media cycle. Tell, tell me about your, your timelines, because you had the plan to get in and get the job um, early, and then you left on your own timetable as well. Was that always the idea? Look, that was uh, doing that CRO for eight years was about the right time. It was about the time frame. It was the time frame I'd previously discussed with the board, but it wouldn't be the way I would have chosen to leave. I mean, we had some great successes in that last year, selling our directories business for a record price, and well, before Google basically completely took the value out of directory businesses and their other telco around the world. Um, but still, the government re-regulation of the sector was a very difficult period. So I had um, a year off after that. I was physically exhausted and I needed a break. And But I hadn't really planned a transition plan because I'd been so focused on the job. And people had asked me to go on boards and I hadn't I'd said no. And then at the time when that would have been good, they weren't asking. So... You know, you, you can't always control the cycles around you. So anyway, um, I wrote my book because I'd been approached by two different publishers to do that. I very much enjoyed that. And then I started getting very involved with the SPCA and that, that's led to a decade's involvement in financially sorting out Wellington and then working with a group. And just now, like end of this month, we've spent three years, the chair of Auckland, Wellington and Canterbury, bringing together the 47 separate SBCAs into one. So, you know, the um, the legacy that we're leaving is an organisation in much better shape for the next 100 years than it would have been if we'd had 47 separate things trying to raise money and can't get commercial sponsors in that position or, or government funding. So that was the start of that. And that's also the start of my entrepreneurial journey because I got approached by Cecilia Robinson about mentoring her and her first business, Opearlink. And I said, yes, I did that. I worked with her and her husband, James. And I realised that business couldn't scale up, but they were fantastic entrepreneurs. And when she showed me the business plan for my food bag, I thought to myself, this is really going to fly as long as we can execute this well. And I said, I'm in, you know, basically the minute I saw it. And then that led, that has led to an amazing five-year journey so far. And... You know, no one's more surprised than me that, you know, I've become 
in, in a way, what my father always wanted to be, a hugely successful entrepreneur. Yeah, well, and let's look at the... We had Cecilia on and she was um, fantastic at talking about all of the challenges of scaling and she you know, th- thanked her mentors and, and talked about that. Uh, but the, the pace of change over um, such a short period of time to get up to $100 million of annual revenue and 50,000 customers, it, it's almost mind-bending. You know, it really is. Um, we definitely did intend to have a big business. In fact, a year in when we are turning over $30 million, I was presenting to a big accounting firm, and the guy said, oh, yeah, I really get it. This is a big business, which is currently small. And that's right. So James was very careful. He, The whole IT thing he drove, he's one of the one of the best, if not the best, business IT person I've ever worked with, and he's much more than that, but he excelled at that in the setup. So he set it up for scale from the beginning. And although we started in OPA Link's offices in Nadia's kitchen, we always knew we were going to go big as fast as we could. And so we actually borrowed telecom remuneration systems. You know, we actually had the intention to build a big business, but in a way that celebrated what we were able to do because we were not, we were the owners. And so Celia would have told you about implementing two years ago a double the government requirement on maternity paternity leave and extending that to men in the office, not just women. And when she announced that, it was actually the men, two men whose wives who don't work at my food bag, who'd had children recently, they were the ones that cried and said, this is going to make a difference to my life. So, you know, we've been able to create a fantastic culture and run a phenomenally successful business at the same time. But to your point, you're moving around every week millions of pieces of produce, of food, packing it in bags, putting it into couriers, taking it to people's homes. And that is a logistics challenge every week. A, a huge challenge mm. and um, also a huge cultural impact, uh, you, you know, giving giving that time and that freedom back to people and um, making a lot of money out of that convenience factor. Well, you know, we call our customer service team the customer love team, and they truly are, because every week we get customer love. We get people saying, you've saved my marriage because we now sit down together and have a meal. Um, my kids wouldn't eat vegetables, but now they do because it's Nadia telling them, not me telling them. And we have truly, I've lost weight or I'm, I've, I've recovered from illness, just that in spades. And from the beginning, we've really focused on customer service it's so, such an important part of the ethos and and you know it's the of course with millions of things moving around you're going to have some issues from time to time and so we've really borrowed the LV Martin it's the putting it right that counts the customer service staff have huge autonomy to make it right for the customer they don't have to you know check three layers of supervision and we've just moved into new cool digs in Parnell on Parnell Rise because we were so grew so fast we we're spread across several sites uh, so it was, first of all, it was intentional. We always intended to run a big business. We all put money into it and we borrowed from the bank and we signed personal guarantees to get the food. So we took a lot of risk. Mm. So, you know, it's, there's no reward without risk. We took a lot of risk. And we and that that drives you. For the first year, um, of course, we didn't pay ourselves a salary. And then we went quite quickly to having hiring staff and working with them. And then we had to go to a model where we could actually afford to hire really, really more senior people and then they were managing teams. And each of those things has been its own thing in terms of how do we approach it and um, we definitely have a culture. 
that we, if we make mistakes, we acknowledge it and we move on. We don't have any recrimination. We learn from everything we do. And we, we really have a spirit, I think, in that company of actually enjoying, first of all, what we do. Mm. Food is wonderful. The development kitchen, the, the feeding of each other, you know, it's pretty special, pretty sexy. Um, so it's rigorous, it's hard work, but it's also enjoyable. And how fun is it to be in a startup where you're making the world new and building new ground, as opposed to being in big legacy businesses where it's more kind of people are worried about what you're going to do next rather than what you're going to invent next? Look, it's a um, different media environment, that's for sure. Mm. I mean, at the end of the day, it's always about the people, right? So I work with some fantastic people in my corporate life and, and, and obviously in telecom and you know, they've become lifelong friends and I would not give any of that time back for a minute. Uh, but now that we live in a world where it's easier to co-create, to create something such as we've created with my food bag, the internet itself has made that possible. And that has its own um, energy that goes from going, okay, because with a telecom you've got legacy systems you can't launch a new product. You can't change things. You've still got all the commitments and contracts you made before. Mm. That's not the only company like that. Other companies are like that. But food businesses, you can try things next week. Mm. You can stop that production run. You can say, we're going to do this. Um, we listen to customer feedback. We launched a vegetarian bag. We listened to that went very well. We listened to customer feedback. We launched a gluten-free bag. That went very well. We listened to customer feedback. We launched a weight control bag, fresh start. And so... That is cool, that ability to be able to take it on board and make it happen. And in terms of, uh, you, you just mentioned before, having to go to the bank and sign personal guarantees and stuff, and the next venture that um, you're here today to, to chat about, um, the, the actual news of the day, um, is Shio, which is such a, such a cool idea because traditionally maybe women having been underpaid and underrepresented in top jobs and um, not able to earn as much with the ridiculous pay inequality, haven't had that ability to sign those personal guarantees and get those loans and get sponsored by VCs. Tell me how Shio steps in to fix that. Well, that's all true. In the US, 4% of venture capital funding goes to women. When I looked for that data in New Zealand, I found that it didn't exist. So this is so unimportant that we don't even measure it. But there's no reason to think that it would be any different. I heard Vicky Saunders, she is her brainchild, and she's a Canadian entrepreneur, speak about this when she was just getting it going a couple of years ago. And I thought that would be really cool. So I bought her to New Zealand earlier this year. She spoke at a conference, and I, there was huge enthusiasm for it. And so we've just launched it in New Zealand, and the idea is that... Uh, 500 women put in a bit over $1,000 each, and that pot of half a million dollars, those 500 women select five ventures to share those funding, to share that funding, and also become their coaches, mentors, advocates, etc. Now, to apply to be a venture, you have to be woman-led, and you have to have revenue, $50,000, so you can't just be an idea. And you have to be doing something good for the community, the country, the world. So, and and it's got to be at a scale. We're not going to fund, you know, a local dairy. So the first round of ventures that she did in Canada, all the companies in that, the, the growth has exploded with this degree of support. So it's an act of radical generosity because you don't get your $1,000 back as an activator. The businesses pay it back over five years, interest-free loan, 
and then you reselect another five ventures to give it to. So, so it's basically women activating, using their capital and their networks to give other women entrepreneurs in their country an accelerated path. And I imagine as it grows, it gets exponentially larger. You are so right. Assu- assuming, you know, um, with the smarts of 500 people um, choosing the right ventures, the ventures are uh, successful. That's exactly what's happening in Canada and the US. And so New Zealand is the first country outside North America to do it because Vicky took a bit of convincing until she came here and saw how wonderful New Zealand was because she had her hands full over there. But she saw that there was a groundswell of support for it here. Now she and I are going to be in Australia next month. They want to get going. And I was with Vicky in Canada and the US two weeks ago and the, uh, the woman from Netherlands who's getting it going over there was there with us. So it's going to mm. it's going to escalate. And in fact, we're going to give preference in our funding round to businesses that are export businesses because they've got all these chapters to basically reach out to immediately should they want to go to any of those countries. Ah, to fire up the network. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a great quote um, that, you, that Cindy Gallup often uh, says, uh, that there's a lot of money to be made by taking women seriously. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, look at my food bag, 85% female customers. And in some of my other businesses with male colleagues, they say to me, oh, we're on my food bag and it's great. And I say, oh, that's great. What bag are you on? They don't know. They know they're eating my food bag. But, you know, it's the woman in the household who's decided what they're doing about it. So it, this is a business that was a woman's idea, led by women, funded by women, serving women but serving the wider community. So it's a very good example of the sort of Shio business that would get funded. So for anyone listening, you, um, women can activate, men can activate in the name of their daughters or, you know, they want to be part of this. And you go to the website, which is shio.world, and you activate there with your credit card or that's also where you go if you want to apply to be a funded venture. And so are you at the moment looking for your first 500 people or yeah. also the first companies to uh, go in for the funding, or both? Both. Um, we just opened the portal for ventures last week, and it's there's 12 questions, it's not complex, there's no big pitch decks, it's pretty straightforward, and we'll be closing the portal for ventures on the 24th of November. Teresa Gadding, thank you very much for coming and talking to us today. It's a, you know amazing story and so cool to see. I, I can't wait to see where Shio goes next. Thank you. Thank you very much to Jose Barbosa for producing and thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you are a fan of the spin-off podcasts, uh, a little bit of new news for you, they're now available on Spotify. So have a search on Spotify for all of your favourite spin-off podcasts. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, Jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. 
cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.